It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. Hello and welcome to Season 9 of The Podcast, the nature and countryside podcast from BBC Country Farm magazine. My name is Fergus Collins and I'm the host of these audio adventures. So Season 9 is our most ambitious project yet, capturing spring across Britain as it unfurls in 12 different wild landscapes. From mountain to heath and coast to meadow, we'll be sharing the joys of the new season with you and encountering some wonderful wildlife and marvellous people along the way. In this first episode, we're celebrating World Curlew Day on the 21st of April by heading in search of these magnificent yet critically threatened waders on their breeding grounds in the wet hay meadows of the RSPB's West Sedgemoor Reserve in Somerset. And talking of marvellous people, our own Annabel Ross is joined by the RSPB's Damon Bridge and acclaimed writer and campaigner Mary Colwell, whose book Curlew Moon has done so much to raise awareness of the curlew's plight. And later... Annabelle is joined by singer-songwriter David Gray, whose passions for curlews and our wild places have influenced his most recent album. He's a total delight. So listen on for the first episode in our wonderful new season, Spring Across Britain. OK, so we're at Swellwood, um, which is on the A378, from um, just to the east of Taunton. Um, and it's on, on a little on a, on a ridge, limestone ridge, that overlooks... Um, the, one, one of the moors of the make up the levels of moors, a big site called West Edge Moor, um, which lies just below this sort of steep scope, steep, yeah, steep scarp slope from, on the edge of Swalwood. Well, I just have to stop you very quickly to say that already we've got um, primroses, celandines, yes. and. Yes, there was lots of uh, the dog's mercury coming up this one. Um, What's it again, sorry? Dog's Mercury. It's got a little green flower. And a lot of people overlook it, but it's, uh, that's actually, it's, um, it's fully in flower. Oh, so I always <laughs> thought that would come out. I've seen that before, and I thought it would might sort of turn into a white flower or something, but it's... No, that, that, it's, that's it. It's, it's, it's bloomed. It's kind of woodland flora, uh, ground flora plant. And we've got the, the lords and ladies, these big, big leaves, heart-shaped leaves um, coming up as well. These names are wonderful, aren't they? Um... And these oh, white... Yes, they're, they're wood anemones. Anem- um, an- yes. Easy for you to say. <laughs> anemones. Yeah, they're, they're again, so wonderful sort of woodland plants. And we haven't quite, in, in this wood, uh, there aren't uh, bluebells. This actually used to be uh, fields at one point, And the, the oak plantation and the hazel were all planted a few hundred years ago. And there aren't any bluebells, but we've got a, a more ancient bit of woodland just across the road, which is a complete carpet of bluebells, which aren't out yet. They come out in a few weeks' time. So you can see in here, it's quite interesting, there's all the old field boundaries, um, the, sort of hedge, the w- old walls and things all in the woodland undergrowth. Um, and all the oaks are all the same age when you look at them. <laughs> They're very, very straight and tall. And they make a fantastic site for the herons. This is one of the biggest heronries in the country. And the herons nest right in the top of the oak trees. And from here, it's just a really easy glide down onto the moors to fish in the ditches and reens and the wet areas. They look a bit unsteady at the top there. (laughs) Today, so if I if I had a nest up there, I'd be a little bit um, unsure. Can you hear this? There's a couple of mizzle thrushes. You can see them chasing around. Oh, there's three, actually. They're having a fight, <laughs> a territorial battle. Um, how wonderful. There's our biggest thrush, really big. Um, thrush, a bit like a song thrush, but, but bigger and a little lighter down the front. Um, but they love these kind of... They, they nest on, on branches, just sort of a really odd nest on, a, on top of a big branch. And these sort of big trees. 
So, so, but they do they is that generally they're called a yeah, they, they, well, they sing as well, but they're called a common uh, sort of local name is storm thrush because they often sing just before the rain and they've got a really beautiful, melancholy song. But then they also do this is more of an aggressive kind of what's well, a flight call, so they do it when they're flying, but also they're they're chasing each other off. Because they're looking for the for, for where to nest at the moment. Yeah, they? there was probably a pair and a, you know a rival bird just being seen off, um, something like that when. Uh, but, uh, so yeah. nice to be out here, Mary. You're keeping very quiet. We'll wait till we get to the curlews. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Don't typecast me. <laughs> no, no, no. You can talk about other things. Oh, okay. <laughs> you mentioned the wood anemones, and. Um, they have, um, they're, they're lovely because they fold up at night, don't they, Damon? And they go yes. all tight and curled up, and, like they're sort of curled up in a duvet. And then as the daylight comes, they open up. So they're beautiful sort of daylight birds, I think. Uh, daylight flowers, oh, which so, is really lovely. So lovely. The chiff-chaff is calling away. Chiff-chaff, chiff-chaff. Yeah, that's lovely. And that's come all the way from Africa. And it's yeah. such a joy to hear. They, I always think of they're bringing the sort of warm African air to us for the spring. They're just so beautiful. Do where, do whereabouts in Africa are they? Do they come from? Do you know the chiffchaff? Where do they? They're sub-Sahara. Yes. Yeah. So they. That's a journey. Like a, lot a tiny of, yeah. little bird. Tiny know, little so bird. So tiny. <laughs> and what are the other calls? Do you know? Uh, yeah. So there's others. There's a um, song thrush calling. He stopped now. He's just and seen he the stopped. microphone. Um, Actually, do you know what? I think that's a middle thrush call that's singing, actually, that one. It's a much sadder, it's more of a um, very kind of melancholy, and they don't repeat quite as much. A song thrush always repeats the same phrase three or four times. That's a bit more melodic. And it's right at the top of one of these big trees. That's what the middle thrushes do. They get to a yeah, storm cock or storm thrush. They sit right at the top. I hope it doesn't mean it's going to check it down. Right <laughs> so do I. <laughs> the difference between the missile thrush and the song thrush, I always think people of a certain age will remember the Roadrunner cartoon. I remember that. <laughs> and, but, and always used to, or is it the Roadrunner where they always used to repeat what they said all the time? Um, they had a phrase that they always repeated, and that's what the song thrush does. It just repeats itself constantly. So it's forgotten <laughs> it's told you once, so it's telling you again. That's <laughs> Another sign, lovely sign of spring. The wood the violets here. So sweet. Okay, yeah. That's the chip chip. Uh-huh. Gosh, okay, what are we looking at here, Damon, across this yeah, vista? So, so this, we're looking out from the edge of the wood, through the trees, to a, a big kind of expanse, um, very flat expanse of, of land. This is all um, fields separated by a network of ditches some fantastic uh, hay meadow type habitat out here there's lots of patches of water on it i suppose it's very low lying and it's all predominantly peat as well um, so this is one of the moors this is a moor called west sedge moor and it's about a thousand hectares altogether we're looking at probably about two or three hundred hectares of that it sort of stretches out out of view um, and these fields, these hay meadow fields, which are cut quite late in the summer, um, they are home to the curlews, most where the curlews breed. So, um, Mary, I presume you're extremely pleased that they're cut late. Very, very pleased <laughs> that they're cut late. <laughs> the problem with a lot of the more intensive ways of producing um, grass to feed to cows over the winter silage production is um, farmers cut, you know, sometimes from late April, early May onwards, quite a few times. Um, and if the birds are nesting in there, they don't have a chance between the cuts. So it's great if farmers can delay. If they've got curlews in a field, fantastic if they can delay it till July, uh, August time, which is kind of what we used to do, you know. That's why we have the school holidays. Everybody used to go out for haymaking and... Everybody was needed in the fields. Now we have great big machines that do large areas very quickly early in the year and ground nesting birds and curlews are not the only ones. There's skylarks and lapwings and so on. They all can really fall foul of that. I remember I remember going to um, friends' farms in the summer and helping them with the hay bales and I loved it. It was just such a lovely feeling of community as well, apart from anything else. Um, do we know if these farmers here 
specifically do wait for a late cutting because of the birds? Um, they, they do, they, they wait, but because they're in agri-environment schemes that, um, that sort of that specify when the fields should be cut. So a lot, of, a lot of the land is owned, down here is owned by RSPB, this particular site, um, but um, but that land is then tenanted to farmers who are in who are in agreements, um, and of course you know we're, we're at this transition now from an old scheme to what's coming in the future. So uh, it will be really really important to make sure there's if we want to hang on to curlews that there's similar schemes that support this late cutting management. Um, and it fits well with these the farmers here. They have uh, beef cattle fairly extensive systems the cattle go out quite quite late maybe sort of second half of may into june um, and then the fields aren't cut for hay until sometime in july sometimes august um, but but because this is a peat site and quite a wet site it's, it's perfect for that and it's also the thing that preserves the peat um, keeps the uh, keeps the carbon locked into the soil um, and we're really hopeful, really um, excited in a way. If, if those, if there are elements of rewarding that kind of management for carbon and for peat in the future, that will fit really well on these kind of sites uh, for Curlew. Oh, that's good news. It's so good to have good news. And um, what are the Curlews doing, Mary, in July? Well, so once they, these farmers do cut, have the Curlews all gone? No, they've probably just got their uh, young. So the young haven't quite uh, grown up enough to fledge, so they'll be all gawky and fluffy and, and their bills aren't that long. And they just wander about, and it's usually the dad that gets left behind at that stage. The, the females tend to hang around for a couple of weeks after hatching and then they go and put their feet up by the sea. But the, the dads <laughs> stay around... Uh, not always, but normally that's the pattern, and keeps an eye on these these youngsters as they're growing bigger and bigger. And then he will leave, and then they will leave later, usually. So it's a bit of a staggered departure from the fields. Um, but once they're up and mobile and bigger, they can get out of the way. Oh, okay. It's the little tiny ones. And, um, and what happens is the little tiny little balls of fluff are wandering about in, in the fields and if the parents see a danger they start calling and, and they have this really urgent, very plaintive sort of distress call and the baby curlews um, they're programmed really just to hunker down, they don't run off to the side or anything, they just squat down and try and hide and then they just end up in a silage sandwich unfortunately. Oh man if you called it that um when I look at fields like this, and I, I uh, don't have the knowledge, Damon, but I worry when I see a lot of water sitting on the top, but is that okay? Yes, it's fine in, these, in these, this kind of habitat. So this is uh, species-rich grassland. Um, it's, it's a wet grassland habitat that can cope with a certain amount of inundation. I mean, in the winter, this can be uh, you know, a half a metre underwater, and, some, and, and probably for a month or a couple of months. And amazingly, that, that kind of, um, those communities, those kind of plant communities in a, in a site like this can cope with uh, inundation. But if you come back here in, in the summer, Annabelle, and look out over this, walk through here, um, and you just have a riot of colour and flowers and butterflies and bees, and it's singing and buzzing, and it's just absolutely beautiful. It's very early in the year yet, but the hay meadows, uh, species-rich grasslands, as Damon has just said, are just full of the most wonderful flowers. And uh, so it's not just the ground-nesting birds it supports, it supports so much else as well. I mean, it's, it's a joy, actually. Um, yeah, lots of other species of breeding cranes as well nest out here, and they're very vulnerable to disturbance. So, What type of cranes? Uh, they're the common, common crane, or Eurasian crane, and they, they're part of um, a reintroduction project um, that started back in 2010. Um, and uh, they're now yeah, completely freely living and uh, all over the, the levels of moors, actually. There's a number of sites where, they, where they're breeding and they've spread also out throughout the southwest. That's great. <laughs> Yes, I saw him. I saw him. You can't. We saw the cranes earlier. We were just wandering around a little bit earlier this morning, and and there were, the cranes are in the fields, and they're so big. 
They're just enormous, yeah. great big flouncy sort of flamboyant things and yet they just disappear into this vast landscape so easily. I mean, it took us a while to spot them yeah. and yet they're big. It's, it's one of the, the wonders of the flatlands like this is how they host so much and they hide so much as well. It's a, it's a, That's amazing. It's a real trick they've got. Do they have um, red beaks or black beaks or...? They've they've got a little bit of red on the top of their head, yeah. which is that yeah. So they're, they're they're kind of black and white. They look a bit like a, a sort of overweight heron in a way. They're they're kind of <laughs> bustly and and fat and um, uh, but they stand yeah. They're about four feet tall, um, and they've the the red the black and white neck and then this red patch on the head. So really kind of quite striking, striking colour combination. Quite exciting the idea of cranes. But today we're mm. sort of hoping to see the curlews aren't we yes we were not hoping we will we will okay good isn't it wonderful that we can be here surrounded by really ancient woodland old woodland and we've got woodpeckers and chiff chaff singing we've got great tits we've got the woodland birds the missile thrush and just down there steep slope and then this great flat plain of wet species rich meadows and that's the joy of this part of the world in the west country there's just so much variety um and you can wander from one world to the other, you know, in just a little a little walk in the morning. It's fantastic. Oh, gosh, I suddenly... My shoulders have gone down. I feel so relieved. <laughs> Everything's going to be OK. So that's where they are? They're down there? Yes. Yes, yes. OK. Yeah, 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 they, they don't like trees. They, curlews really don't like trees very much, um, mainly because they... Uh, in here, there'll be lots of foxes and um, predators like crows and so on. And the curlews are very, obviously, very wary of that. And so they tend to nest away from woodland edges. So they like longer vegetation to put their nest in, but nearby they like shorter, so the chicks can um, get out and potter about and eat insects and things. Um, So they like a bit of a a variation. If it's too short crop, they're too obvious and they're too easily predated. And where have the curlews come from? Where have they arrived from? Do we know where these ones spend the winter, then? No, no. So no, we've not had any um, ringed birds here, so we don't we don't actually know where they go. I mean, we know they go. What's quite interesting with curlews, so, so they generally winter around the coast um, of the UK, and we get a lot of birds from elsewhere in Europe coming here for the winter. But they actually all all mix. So you might have a particular favoured site, say on the Severn Estuary, and there'll be birds from all over. Europe there in the winter and then they'll all go back to their different natal sites the same birds will come back to the same patch of mud um, <laughs> year after year after year okay. but they we, really what we don't yeah. Size, they? Yes. they know and, where they're going and they stick with it and some, some don't move very far in the winter at all so they know that some of the that's right isn't it, some of the new forest birds just go to the coast yeah. but whereas other birds are flying hundreds if not maybe thousands of miles to winter so they've all got slightly different strategies but what yeah what we don't know is the the Somerset Levels birds where they where they spend the winter so it could be just on the coast locally or they may go they may actually migrate down through France and over winter in, in France or but we don't have to know do we do we I think we do and it was it's really really helpful to know how the birds are moving around Europe because we need to be able to look after them wherever they are so these are, but curlews okay. in particular, I think, are very interesting because they use whole landscapes all the time. So they winter on the coast and they nest inland in places like the levels or in the uplands. But even when they're nesting, they're moving about and the non-sitting bird is flying long distances to go and feed. And so we need a lot more information about how they're moving and what landscapes we need to look after for them. So you can't just look after the nest or the wintering site. You've got to do everything else as well. And it's very useful. It's been very useful for us to know that some of our birds go to France and lots and lots of European birds go and spend the winter on the coast in France. And um, until just a couple of years ago, there was still legal shooting of curlews. And, um, and by having this ringing data, we could say, look, these birds that are wintering with you in France are coming from endangered populations and you mustn't shoot them. And that worked. It yeah. stopped the shooting. It's really important we know where the birds are going to. Do they, um, do they eat them? Um, did they eat them? Um, 
yes, traditionally, I think. It feels strange now to think of them, but I suppose, yeah, I'm completely normal in, in times past. There's a wonderful medieval recipe I found when I was writing my book about them where you'd uh, cook them and then you'd hang their long necks over the side of the pot. <laughs> Wow. Which sounded absolutely revolting. Horrific! <laughs> dead, dead head hanging over your cooking but pot. Apparently that was very desirable at one point. What, what your book, oh, Curly Moon, is it called Curly Moon? Oh, well remembered, Annabelle. But you've actually just released another book. Just about to come out. Oh, it hasn't come out yet. At the end of April. Um, and that it was inspired by Curly Moon, really, because when I did this 500-mile walk across Ireland and Wales and England to try to discover what was happening to curlies, what I did realise was how big a feature in their lives predators were. Common predators like crows and foxes and badgers and buzzards and kites and all sorts of predators that we have here. And what a complicated and difficult relationship we have with predators in Britain and it was so interesting, very contentious it gets people very hot under the collar it is something that causes a lot of conservation angst so I just wanted to explore that a bit more and lay out quite simply I think and hopefully evenly what the issues are I'm hoping we can this wind is not going to help display interiors but what I'm hoping we do we could find one in there Oh, it's a marsh harrier. So marsh harrier drifting across. That might actually put the curlews up. So we might. Um... Ah. Yeah, they're uh, fantastic. You can, it's really hard to see without the. Yeah, really hard just to see without coming the in. Oh, there, okay. Yeah, yep. Yeah, you can see them now. Sort of turn, Gosh, turning. They quite, fly quite big. Yeah, very long wings, yeah. and they apply their this is kind of classic, slightly V shape when they're gliding, like their wings point up. And um, you can see that. So, unlike you know, if it was a buzzard at a distance, their wings would be straight across. Oh, okay. And not not in this V. Ah, okay. Yes, yeah, so, well, I mean, really recent here. So they they started. Um, they were incredibly rare in the UK, and they, these are all um, egrets. So a big flock of little egrets, mostly. We have also. I'm just checking to see because we have had some cattle egrets around. And there's also great white egrets as well. So amazing, they're all, all heron, different types of heron, types of egrets. Um, the little egrets actually nest in with, the, in with the, the gray herons in the wood at the top of the trees, big trees. Um, but the, the great white egrets, which nest in more in reed beds really and very low down, they nest almost on a little nesting platform just above the water. He's got Might a very be, nice view, the farmer, hasn't he? What, um, what's the monument we can see in the distance, Damon? So the, that's up, um, it's, it's called the Burton Pinsent Monument. Shall just wait for this tractor? He to might want us. to come. I think he's going to come this way. It's Brian. Very happy farmer. He is, he's a lovely, lovely tractor. Oh, you know him? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, Sorry, the monument. Yes, so the monument is uh, it's called the, it's Burton, the Burton Pinsent Monument. So the Burton Pinsent Estate is a, a sort of a, a large estate. It used to be a big house up there, which is now gone. But the monument's known, no, known locally as the Cider Monument because it was uh, it was put up uh, by the uh, Pinsent family to thank. Um, the, one of the pits, I'm not, I always get confused which one it was, and they, they'd changed the taxation laws around cider back in the 1700s. <laughs> and so the, the, the Pinsent family then be, be, made a lot of money. And so to say thank you, they got this monument put up, um, <laughs> so which is still, still standing. It's fantastic. It's got quite a lean on it from one angle. You can see it's, it's, you used to be able to go up it, but it's closed now because it's a bit unsafe. But... Um, it's a fantastic view. You can walk up there and get a great view out over the moor. Um, you can see this group of deer down here, roe deer in with oh, the, yeah. um, the egrets. They're, they're very, they're kind of unfazed when they're out on the moor uh, because they can see you coming. If they're in the woods, they just they yeah. just hide and they just dash away. But, uh, yeah. You can see what it means Skylark. for you. It's just, oh yeah, Skylark. Lovely sound. But um, you can see what I mean, you know, and the cranes you could easily miss, and the curlews you could definitely easily miss. Curlews would be much more camouflaged, yeah, presumably. Yeah, hopeless, yeah. 
they're sort of it's almost like they do it on purpose. Sandy. No, brownie, grainy, creamy coloured. Yeah, see the colour of that field? <laughs> that's, that's, that's the, the colour. Color brilliant, the that's great that we're <laughs> looking for curlies in that field. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> but how, how would you describe a curly call? Just like a, a rising, swirling bubble of notes. It's, and it rises up and up and up and up and swirls and rises and it just bursts out over the landscape. It's the most wonderful sound and you can't quite tell whether you feel happy or whether you feel sad when you listen to it because it kind of magically interweaves major and minor keys so sometimes you can think oh that's such a happy sound and size it's such a mournful sound and I think that reflects the landscapes that it lives in as well it's um it is just an extraordinary sound but it has a number of calls but the bubbling call is the one which people absolutely love right we're going to have to negotiate these puddles because yeah, I didn't bring my gumboots. <laughs> but I've got my boots on. But yeah, Damon, you can, you've got your boots. A pair of swans. Is that there year-round, that pond, Damon? Yes, that, okay. that is actually. That's a permanent, yeah, permanent bit of water. Yeah. Yeah. Stop dove just flying across. Right, they often get overlooked. They're quite. Um, they do get overlooked. They've really declined. And southwest grape stock doves. I bet there's the UK species. They've had a big, big decline. Yeah, they're down in these. They will be just down in these. Oh, uh, in fact. What? Well, so they could be actually quite, quite near to where we are. They'll be in these the, the sort of brownie fields. Yeah. Not not directly in front of yeah. us. I mean, we can we can go down where we went down to yeah, the gate and then see if. Um, okay. Yeah, they're coming here. They were coming here. The other morning, I was watching, um, and it was about half past, about half past eight. So um, not not very early, and they they just they were just all going off. They were, they were sort of four or five babbling away, and all just they sort of set each other off. I don't know if they were having a bit of a territorial uh, trying to sort out who was going to have the best field. <laughs> um, and then other times of day. You just wouldn't know they were there, they're just feeding and they've got their heads down. Um, but yeah, windy days is definitely not great when it's windy. Like a lot of birds just keep their heads down in the wind. They don't, they don't, they don't like um, the wind. I mean, because they can't hear as well. If, if their song is their way of proclaiming their territory yes. and you know, it doesn't travel well in the wind. And... Do you want but to come we'll... up? Oh. Are you all right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I particularly like, we were talking about the curly calls, and there's one call which I really like. So they do the bubbling, but there's quite often this low note that one of them makes mm. on the ground. Mm. And they'll, I think it's a, I think it's when they're nesting, isn't it? They do a, or, or they're, yeah, it's like a... I can't persuade either of you to, um, well, yes, thank this, you. This one there is you like a, There was no need to persuade moan. you. <laughs> it's like a... <laughs> Like it's very gentle, kind of sad, moan, yes, moany, quite mournful. mournful sound. Um, oh, that's so sweet. And we know from nest cameras, and the camera that's been put up in Shropshire, how much the adult birds chat to the eggs and the little chicks, and they clack their bills and they make soft little whistles and hoots. And they're literally amazing. I was amazed by that footage from the um, the young the young birds that were the head started birds that um, WWT have been working on. They um, the fact that they could do their bubbling call whilst they were still they they were still juveniles not yet released with short bills, and they were doing a full on adult curly <laughs> call. It's like they can do that from the, almost the moment they come out of the egg, um, which is remarkable. Chatty, constantly yeah. communicating, and the and the tenderness with which the the, the sitting bird with this very long bill just gently guides them and ch- whistles at them, and you know it's 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 really beautiful to see those intimate tender moments that we don't often get the privilege to see because they're high, they're very difficult to find. It's only by putting nest cameras up do we get a glimpse into their real lives and. Um, and it makes the loss of them just hurt even more. 
When did you first um, come across curlews, Mary? What started your passion for them? So it's just almost impossible to say, really. It's kind of like they grew on me. Um, I grew up in the Staffordshire Moorlands um, towards, you know, my sort of teenage years, really. And they are still there in the Staffordshire Moorlands. So I think their call must have sort of been absorbed. But I remember seeing them in Scotland when I went walking and just being marvelling at how they looked. Um, and then hearing one flying over a lock in Orkney and just calling its long curly call. And it was beautiful morning, early. It was like this, it was sort of bright sunshine, cold wind, and it just flew across this lock and it was, it was just like everything was in the right place. <laughs> That's what it felt like. Gosh, how beautiful. And I love the way they look. They're kind of comical in a way because they're all yeah. stretchy-necked and big-nosed and, <laughs> and stringy legs. And yet, they're also beautiful. So they're birds that sort of wrap so much. They're calls, you don't know whether they're happy and sad. They're, they look, you don't know whether they're funny or just elegant. They're everything. And that's, I think, why I love them so much. These fences, we've got lots of these droves, these tracks that just run straight out onto the moor. And actually, this is a fairly simple thing you can do um, to just make access difficult for foxes. Okay, yes, so they, they, the can't, um, they can't just trot down here. They, if they want to get in, they need to go in through a ditch and foxes don't really like getting wet. And there might be that just diverts them enough to go somewhere else and forage that's, for food. That's fairly inoffensive, um, isn't it? So it's they, actually... they are fairly, and they're fairly, at a distance, you can't really see it. It doesn't no. look so nice close up, but um, uh, you don't, it just blends in at a distance. Is it, I thought it was getting better, Mary, or is it, get, is it, is it still going, d- declining, the, I mean the, the, population. the curly population? I think it's patchy. Um, where there's direct intervention, like uh, Damon and people doing here, you know, protecting them and looking after the landscape and making sure the grass isn't cut too early and the predators are kept away, uh, they're doing better than in other places where management is more difficult. Um, but one statistic recently that we heard in Shropshire, northern Shropshire area, there was 100 pairs of curlews over this quite large area, but 100 pairs. And last year, only one nest fledged, any chicks. All the others predated early on, uh, probably at the egg stage. And any of the others that did manage to hatch chicks just um, just got predated. So, so they were all laying? Oh, yes. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with the habitat, nothing wrong with the birds just that they didn't survive so in some areas predation pressure is very high in other areas mowing rates are very high in other areas the land's been drained too much and reseeded with fast growing crops it's got too much stock on it uh, you know there's a whole the other areas there's just too much disturbance disturbance by dog walkers is a really big issue in parts of um, say for example the new forest um, and people don't realise that you're letting your dog run around, which is so tempting in a place like this, isn't it? I mean, I've got a dog. I would love to let my dog run around here. But you just can't because it scares the birds off the nest and then the crows and foxes really just come in, uh, the crows particularly in the daytime. So they, they've just got enough to cope with just to keep going and so we really do need to help them as much as possible they're used to high levels of predation that's not that predation is completely natural and part of their life part of the way the world works Mm. but it's at the moment the predator pressure is very high and the uh, very high problems very many problems with the way we manage land the Somerset levels the population has actually steadily increased over the last 20 or 30 years it's about one of the only sites in the country where that where that has happened um, but we are really lucky here you know, we, we've got these big extents of extensively managed wet hay meadows still and those of uh, what's disappeared in other parts of the countryside whereas farming has really intensified the key thing now is to find a, you know the trick is uh, making sure that that can continue in some form it might not be traditional farming in that sense I'm not going to speak now for a little bit I'm hoping that you guys might magically conjure up some curlews <laughs> with your binoculars maybe then I'll do, I'll do some scanning around with this and see if I can might see a head at a distance or something <laughs> I think we have some big questions to ask ourselves as a society really, what do we want from our landscapes, what do we want you know if we want intensively produced food that's made as cheaply as possible then that we have that choice or do we want a much more biodiverse uh, landscape where we do make room for wild creatures? And it's, 
it's a choice we have to make and it's never an easy choice it's not good versus bad it's not there's baddies and goodies in this it's not as simple as that no matter how many times people might try to make it a black and white issue or you know adversarial it isn't you know we do need to feed the nation we do need to have uh, dairy and milk and meat and all the sorts of things that people want to buy but how do we do that and leave space for these wild and wonderful things and I think that's those are the questions that we have to now really face up to and we haven't had to for quite a long time but we're at such a crisis point with so much of our wildlife it's very important we start being serious about answering the question what do we want we all want a better world for ourselves and for the next generation so we have work to do and we can build on successes I'm not saying it'll all be easy of course it isn't and there's always disagreement and there's a lot of passion involved in there but we have to find a way through otherwise we will lose a lot of the magic and the beauty which makes us feel human <laughs> and it's only in the last few I mean decade or so that we've just suddenly thought wow we're in look at us we're in a really bad way one of the most nature depleted countries on earth according to the United Nations how bad is that you know and so when you come to these little honey pots and already just on a short walk we've seen woodland birds we've seen a marsh harry we've seen deer we've seen wildflowers you know we've seen egrets well hope we, we, we know this Cody I promise there are because I saw them <laughs> earlier they're just ignoring they're being I just don't want to... The wind has just died down for a second, so you, so you might... Know. You never know. You might hear them. But this is what it should be, but, but you know, on steroids. We should have so much more of this everywhere. And, and it would help all of us. It would help our... Oh! They're just keeping their heads down because of the wind. That's, they're just feeding away somewhere out in this flat landscape. It's all like we're chatting to each other quietly. It's just that we can't hear it. Yeah. Whistling away to each other. Well, I think that's okay. We we know they're there, don't we? We know they're there. And they definitely are. And they're protected, and that makes us happy. You know, we don't need to hear them. You know they're there. And Damon, you probably see them fairly regularly, I imagine. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they're... Um, I'd say you, you would <coughs> undoubtedly see them if we kind of walked out down here, but you'd also be disturbing them from... There's a curlew in the distance. Well, they didn't find any curlew song in this adventure, sadly. Nature can be very fickle at times, as regular listeners to this podcast will know. However, Mary did send us some recordings made by her friend Jeff Sample of this strange bird's incredible song. And the Curly Song is a perfect introduction to our last guest on this podcast, singer-songwriter David Gray. David is best known for his music, but here he talks to Annabel Ross about his passions for curlies and for Britain's wildlife and wild places, and how they've shaped his most recent musical project. I was just thinking about you, and I wondered if when you hear birdsong, it's kind of making you almost hum along and thinking oh that yeah okay I feel something coming out here whereas when I hear birdsong I'm not thinking about singing or songwriting do you, do you feel when you hear birdsong that it inspires you with anything? No just the sense of urgency and and celebration and um, you know it, it's it's has the same effect on me as it has on everybody else. <laughs> I, I, Oliver Messiaen sort of turned birdsong into music and various composers have apparently Beethoven as well, very much quoting birds in lots of his pieces. So it's supposed to be a yellow hammer, famously, duh, 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 duh. It's supposed, that's supposed to be from the yellow hammer. <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, so, but no, I've never, I've never, um, I've never done a direct translation across. I just take it as the thing that it is, bird sound, uh, just how intense it is, the volume you know, that they generate. I mean, a wren uh, or a chetty's warbler, I mean, the sound that comes off them is just incredible. Gosh, you really are knowledgeable about your birds. You know, I just had a walk recently with Mary Colwell 
and uh, we went to the uh, Somerset levels to find curlews for this podcast that we're yeah. talking about today. And it was a really, really, really windy day. It was last week and I've never seen a curlew. So we didn't see them or hear them because they were hunkering down because of the wind. So presumably you've seen plenty of curlews and heard plenty of curlews. I never have. I did. I went down to my house on the North Norfolk coast. As soon as I got there, a flock of 100 curlew or more uh, on the marsh. Uh, Mary reckons they're European birds. They'll be heading off soon. So uh, they're not going to be breeding in that area. These birds will be moving on to breed. Uh, Oh, Yeah, still calling and, you know, not in full song, but there's elements of song. So... How do you describe their their call? How would you describe their call? Well, to return to your first question, the RSPB have put some money into a a, a musical project to celebrate the curlew as part of the package of, 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 of raising awareness. And I've been asked to contribute a song. So actually I have to, I've been pondering how to approach the curlew from a musical point of view, which, which brings challenges with it. And um, you would, without getting too folksy, it's, it's quite a, a tricky thing to try and do. So I've, I've been pondering that and I've been pondering what the sound of a curlew means um, and just ha- wh- why it's it's so captivating and why it's it, it, it hits you so deep because it seems like the landscape is speaking you'll you'll see that being said by lots of people when they talk about the curlew it's something primeval it's it's giving it's voicings of an older time, so time out of mind. Uh, these birds have been coming here for millennia, millennia, you know. And um, their, their 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 song of has a bittersweet quality, and like all the best art, it, it keeps you hovering, not knowing whether you're uplifted or or actually feeling um, incredibly moved by the tragedy that seems to be somehow in. in wrapped up in this little bit of singing but it's such a it's the way it grows the intensity of it um and and seems to split in midair as a sound and go in two directions at once and that's what i've been focusing on when i'm trying to write my piece of uh of music i'll quote the first line that i've written i mean none of this might be for keeps but the arc of sound it's the prism of the human heart and splits. Gosh. And um, that, that's, that's, that's the beginning of my piece. But I'm finding it hard to approach the bird. So I think they were often seen as like an omen, a bad omen, something from the spirit world. And uh, you can see why. Because in, in times before the NHS, life was a, a perilous game. And... Um, you know, people were dropping like flies in in childbirth and children and illness. So these, these returns, these birds like barn owls and like curlews that seem to, to hold the keys to another dimension, uh, that, that they became, we projected onto them. And, 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 and so I'm working within the bounds of that idea and conflating memories of time spent with people that I've lost in the presence of this sound and realizing that there is something, um, it does seem to stop the clock when you hear it, because I think you're, you're going into deep time when they sing. And I think it's an immediate meditation. As you hear it, you stop and the clock and the phone disappear and you drop into this noise. So uh, the idea that this sound is going to be lost from the countryside is, so troubling to me. I, I really don't think I could bear it, actually, if we lost the curlew. I, no. I really don't, I don't think that life would be worth living in, in a weird way. I, I, that's how I feel now. Of course, it's just a bird. And, um, but uh, if we were losing the works of Ted Hughes or William Butler Yeats or, you know, the, the, the poetry of Seamus Heaney, if people were just throwing it on a bonfire somewhere to get better crops in each year, or put up a few pine trees to, you know, cut down for Christmas. If that's what was happening, there would be an outcry. All the Etonians and the Oxbridge 
collective, the people at the head of our society, wouldn't stand for it. They'd be stamping their feet. There'd be steam coming out of their ears. <laughs> Uh, but the problem is a lot of these people like to shoot as well. So you've got all these conflicting influences uh, on, on opinion. Uh, I, I, I see it anyway. I see it as fundamental to our culture, this bird, as, as all those poets. So um, yeah. uh, the, uh, the idea of it being gone is just to drain colour out of our land. Uh, and if, if this is what the future looks like, you know, uh, um, it's not one that I want to associate with. So Mary's... Um, work and her book woke me to the, the reality of just how desperate their plight is becoming. And in Ireland, perhaps it's already too late. A staggering statistic of decline there. But in the UK too, it, it, it's, it's, and Wales uh, in particular places, it's, it's, it's really, really dropping at a scary rate. And the breeding success is, is, is so... Um, so low that, mm. that, that, that really in 20 years' time, we're going to really see the impact of this. And that's, that's, that's truly terrifying, I think. Do, do, uh, we've got um, World Curlew Day on the 21st of April. It's not far away. So what, uh, and I know that you're, are you an ambassador for, for Curlew Action or you're part of Curlew Action? So what should we be doing? What should we all be doing on World Curlew Day? Well, I think celebrating the curlew and thinking hard about our own locale and the sort of op opportunities that might be there for the curlew or that might be dwindling away. Um, I, I, think, I think it's the day to celebrate the bird purely and simply. So I don't think we have to grapple with all the complexities. and um, They are very complex, the issues that surround managing land and and creating room for wildlife. I mean, sadly, the human domination has favoured the sort of improvisers, the jays, the magpies, the foxes, you know, and, and, and those predators are direct, you know, are a direct threat to curlew chicks and curlew nests, crows, all these creatures that do so well. That's just a part of the picture. So I think the World Curlew Day is to celebrate the curlew. I mean, I can remember seeing a curlew for the first time on, my dad was a golf mad kind of person and um, we used to go on holidays up to Scotland and I remember seeing one in some estuary somewhere on near the beach in Scotland as a child, just a small child. But because it's so distinctive, it was easy to identify. So I soon worked out, that's a curlew, someone said, and then you've got it, the bill, the size of this wading bird. And then you hear it and and there's it's, it's a bird with an, an added dimension. I mean, oyster catchers and red shanks create a lot of noise, but there's something about the curlew that's something else goes on. So that 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 that, that very first encounter left uh, a lasting impression, and and it, it's it, I had no idea. I knew that wildlife was struggling, but uh, I had no idea at the mm. scale of the problem until Mary sort of availed me of the sort of full picture really and you um have you ever um drawn a curlew because i am am i right in saying that you drew the artwork on the front of your new album skelek it's like is it a leaping salmon or atlantic yeah, salmon that's did right, you draw yeah. that yeah i did yeah so I, have you drawn a curlew <laughs> i i probably as a child i would have so far back now that there's no record of these things but i haven't tried in my adult life um, yeah. So the, the 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 idea of the salmon for the Skellig record was uh, again I've conflated two things with these islands, these bird-rich islands, and the monks that lived there off the west coast of Ireland. I once took a transformational journey when my parents moved from Manchester to Wales, and we lived next door to a family of fishing people um, who had a, a big trawler in Solver Harbour and one morning they were going past and I was already up, it was like six o'clock in the morning, playing outside. And they said, oh, all right, Dave, uh, do you want to come on the boat today? And so I went and asked my mum and dad and um, they took me out for a day's trawling, but not just trawling, we picked up the pots, but we went from Solver to Skoma. So we went across St Bride's Bay. Skoma Island is an and Skoma and Skokum are two islands about 10 miles away, incredible nature there. But um, 
the a, a salmon leapt out of the water on one of these fishing trips, and um, it's remained frozen in my mind uh, ever since. It was like a beautiful day. Obviously, it's a Christian symbol, the fish, and there's the monks on the island. So I guess there is a, a symbolism there too. But for yeah. me, it's a very personal symbol. So the whole uh, cover is your is your art. The whole gosh. It's like when people give you a songwriting brief for a movie or something. It's actually very helpful. Or even the curlew thing. I've been asked to write a song about curlews. has yielded four or five different ideas because I'm trying to find the right traverse across the idea that, that, that yields real, real results. Uh, and it's, you can't go direct at things all the time. Oh, the curlew, he did sing. You just end up with some terrible chord <laughs> folk song you know um which is sort of the generally the way it goes <laughs> trying to find another way in so anyway it was it, there's no excuses anymore I mean it's one of the <laughs> lies I tell myself every year is that I'm going to spend more time painting return to painting a little bit but I think as I get a bit older I, I, I definitely will it's just it's just about having a bit of space but maybe I should make a curlew as you say I think it'd be lovely. I, I, I can't wait to hear the curly song coming out, your um, not folk song, curly song. <laughs> um, I've been listening to um, Skellig and uh, it's really interesting because it was, it, it, uh, as far as I can tell you, it was inspired by Skellig, these terrifyingly remote, sort of uh, cold, freezing cold looking islands um, off the west coast of um, Ireland. All I knew was that when we recorded this record, it was done in an old school style. So no click tracks. Uh, it was all live. And because the sort of sonic dimension of the record was essentially simple, it was drifting acoustic music. So me playing the guitar or the piano and everyone else gathered around singing with me. That was essentially how we cut the songs. The, re the songs were a long time, you know, in the making and maybe 15, 20 years almost, some of them that were involved that have been around for. So I've been accumulating this collection of songs that felt uh, like they were kin. And I felt that with this record, they all needed to tap into the same sense of space. Uh, and that was absolutely essential. So this communal living, almost aping the monks up on the rock themselves and their singing and living, we lived very, very intensely together for that, that five or six days. Uh, and, and it was a wonderful experience. So that communality, that sense of love and connection that is actually there in all the songs. It was the most heady piece of recording, a period of recording that I've ever had. Yeah, to share things in life. I mean, to really be on the level with other people and to leave yourself wide open and yeah, that's the state you have to be in to make music. You have to be able to receive and hurt and feel. Uh, so that, that's, it's in this prone state that, that that's when the best things happen. Just relaxing and catching the thing. And uh, it was, yeah, it was as the music piled up over the sort of 14, 15 songs we recorded, we just, we got into this, yeah, a heightened state. And then on the final day, we did these two new songs, which I'd written and completed uh, the night before. So um, just to add a little bit, bit more extra spice, so even I didn't quite know what was going on, so to sing things that had never been sung. Uh, that's how we concluded. And by the end of that, we were absolutely out of our minds. We were like a bunch of idiot children. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're making me think that I'm really quite jealous of just the idea of, of that kind of bonding and community that you had up there. Whatever you were doing, you happened to be producing beautiful songs. But it just, I'm rather envious, especially because of what we're going through. David, I'm going to ask, uh, I've been asked to ask you which, we'd like to play one of your songs from the new album onto the podcast. Um, so which one would you like us to put on? It's entirely up to you. I have no preference. I mean, the title okay. tr track, Skellig, seems like a good starter for 10. Yeah, you know, well, I, I, that I, makes I, it easy. It, it, it set the tone for the record. It was the gateway song that showed me, ah, I, I, once I layered the vocals, then I had a thought a few years later, what if, every, if this was lots of voices singing rather than me? And uh, everyone's singing almost in unison. I wonder what that would sound like. And then when we tried it, 
that's what gave birth to the entire concept of the album. Lovely. Well, David, thank you so much for today, and I look forward to seeing you out in the in the wilds. Thank you. And, um... Let the song I'm singing was an ocean wide. Let the world. the title song from David Gray's new album, Skellig, which is out now on all digital streaming platforms and will be released on CD and vinyl on May the 14th. 
And a huge thank you to David for taking the time to speak to us. It was a joy. And a massive thanks also to Damon Bridge of the RSPB and to Mary Caldwell, whose celebrated book Curlew Moon is published by William Collins and is a must read. Lastly, thank you to our own Annabelle Ross for conducting all these adventures. So you've been listening to the BBC Country Farm magazine podcast. Please do leave likes and comments wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear them. And join us next week when we spend some time with Country Files farmer Adam Henson talking spring in the Cotswolds. Thanks for listening. And it just remains for the curlews to play us out. <laughs>